Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. To obtain a tight outline of today's message, you can go to the show notes or details page of your podcast platform. Today we're going to be looking at what our spiritual life should look like from Isaiah 57, 15. Through this, we see a few different pictures of what our spiritual life is supposed to look like. Hence the title, Life Pictures. And now, here's Tom Claiborne with a new message called Life Pictures. Get your sermon notes page out and also turn to that uh, passage in Isaiah 57. Life pictures. A young minister was speaking at a rescue mission in the heart of an urban slum. He pointed his down and out audience toward God and urged them to change their lives. And he ended his presentation with Rudyard Kipling's classic poem called If, which offers a number of inspirational life challenges that begin with the word if. Some of those were as follows. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs. If you can wait and not be tired of waiting. If you can dream and if you can think. And if you can meet with triumph and disaster. And finally, he got to that great concluding line at the end. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. And there was a pause, and from the back of the room, a young man's voice cried out, What if you can't? What if you can't? That's a fair and realistic question, isn't it? What if you can't? Because it's not just the cry of despair from urban slums or inside jailhouses. It's the cry of all of us as sinners when we try to live like Jesus and come up short. What if you can't? It was the cry of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 when he said, the good that I want to do... (laughs) I don't seem to be able to do as consistently as I want, and the bad things I try to avoid, I find myself falling into those things. What if you can't? So what happens when we fail? And notice I said when we fail, not if we fail. What happens when we fail? When we fall? When we sin? When impurity enters our mind, or our life, what then? What if you can't? How do we get back on track? After all, Hebrews 12, 14 says this, and this is kind of chilling, says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. <laughs> no one. No one will see the Lord without holiness. Psalm 24 asks, who can stand in God's holy place? 
And then it answers its own question. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. <laughs> I hate to tell you, but that's all of us. <laughs> who cannot do that. We do not have clean hands or a pure heart. So where do we turn? What do we do? I love the answer in Isaiah 57, verse 15. Pictures God way up here, us way down here. It says, for this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, his name is holy. I live in a high and holy place. But also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So here's the good news. God is anxious to revive us and lift us and renew us. And he will do that when our spirit is contrite. In other words, when our spirit is broken and repentant. Once saw a list of five statements that address this issue, and uh, they became the, the five points I used to develop this sermon. I love these five pictures. And these five pictures will help us as we seek to get back on track with God, whoever we are, wherever we are in our relationship with Him. All of us. Here's the first picture. God on the throne, a picture of of holiness. Look again at the first half of this amazing verse. For this is what the high and lofty one says. <laughs> I love that phrase. I don't know if it was that, that image anywhere else in Scripture of God. The high and lofty one. Here's what he says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. See, that should be our beginning point wherever we are in our relationship with God. Seeing that God is high and exalted, He is holy, He is unchanging. When we fail, He remains strong. When Satan seeks to destroy us, God fights for us. When life is hard, God is good. When the world hates, God loves. When the world is corrupt, He is pure. When the world lowers its standards, God still lovingly calls us to be our best. God is holy. That is our standard, that is our motivation, that is our assurance. On your outline, you've got a, 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 uh, an equation there. A lot of you can probably already fill it in. The word holy in scripture simply means set apart. Set apart, separate from, and in God's case, above and beyond. In God's case, it means he is set apart completely and absolutely from sin, and he is set apart from all creatures. He is different. And that's why Isaiah, in that classic passage in chapter 3, he sees, Isaiah sees the angels saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's why that same image is presented again in Revelation 4, 8. It's why in Exodus 15, 11, it says of God, he is majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. It's why Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel 2, 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. It's why Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 13, says, my God, my holy one, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. 
God is holy. Picture that. He is a God to take seriously. He is a God to worship, a God to trust, a God to follow, a God to imitate. And therefore, you can write this in on your outline, His, His holiness is our motivation to be holy. The fact that He is holy becomes our motivation to be holy as well. 1 Peter chapter 1 refers to this idea, and it goes back to an Old Testament passage and quotes it. It says, those obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So we're to be holy not just to escape hell. We're to be holy not just to go to heaven and not just to be a good person. We're to be holy to be like God. We are his special possession. He bought us and we belong to him. When we see our own failures, let's cling to a God who never fails. From his throne, God calls us higher and offers to empower us. He says, don't give up, don't give in. For this is what the high and holy one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. But notice the other part. But also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the holy and to revive the heart of the contrite. In other words, he wants to raise us to a higher place that we cannot achieve on our own. Now, the next life picture is uncomfortable, all right? Fair warning. But it's very important. The next life picture is sin in the mirror, a picture of brokenness, a picture of brokenness. Now, I am not talking about just looking around and seeing sin. That's easy. It's all around us. But when it becomes helpful to us is when we clearly see sin in the mirror, when we're standing in front of the mirror, and we become deeply disturbed by it. When we first started having kids, all those years ago now, um, you start noticing quickly, and I already knew this to a degree, that kids say cute things, they say interesting things, they say profound things, they say things you want to remember. Um, so I started writing these things down, because of course I'm a preacher and I figured I can use those as illustrations someday. Well, one of my favorites was one of Anya's prayers when she was two years old. She was two years old, Leah was four, Micah, you were nowhere to be seen at that point. And Anya prayed one night before bedtime, and in her prayer, she included, in this short little prayer, three of the aspects, the important aspects of prayer, intercession, praise, and confession, all right? Here in three simple sentences, she included those three aspects of prayer. Here was her whole prayer. She said, Mommy, Daddy, Leah, Anya, God is so good, Leah made a mess. So she got the intercession part. She prayed for Mommy, Daddy, Leah, Anya. Praise, God is so good. <laughs> Confession, Leah made a mess. But there's a problem with that, isn't there? <laughs> um, she happily confessed her sister's sins rather than her own. Now that's kind of excusable for a two-year-old, right? But it's not so excusable for us adults who seem to hang on to that same pattern 
throughout most of our lives. It always seems to be easier to confess someone else's sins <laughs> than to acknowledge our own sins to God or to a Christian friend. But one of the secrets to overcoming sins in our own life is to be honest about them, about our sins. Why don't you go ahead and turn to Psalm 51. We're going to refer in a minute to this classic passage. We saw this a few weeks ago in the Psalm series. But I want to give a quick background for this Psalm, Psalm 51. The background is in 2 Samuel 11, as a lot of you know. David on this occasion, King David, saw a woman bathing. And we're really running right over the whole story. Uh, he lusted after this woman. He arranged to have her brought to him. He had sex with her. She became pregnant. He tried to cover it up. Part of that cover-up was arranging to have her husband killed. He then married her, and they had a son together. And for nine months, at least, David tried to cover up that sin. Now, we know it was nine months because they had a son together in nine months, you know. So he's still hiding the sin. But God, in his disgust and disappointment, sent a prophet named Nathan who told David a story. It was a parable in a sense, a word picture, about a man who took advantage of another person in a very unfair way. This wealthy man who had all things took advantage of this poor man. And in 2 Samuel 12, when Nathan gets to the end of this story, David is irate at this terrible person that would have taken advantage of this lesser person. It says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for, for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan <laughs> comes in with his clincher and says, You are the man. <laughs> That's you. That's you I was talking about in that story. It was terribly uncomfortable for David, but it began a slow healing process in David's life because in verse 13, just a few verses later, David said, I, I have sinned. I'm the bad guy. I'm the evil one. And thus, in Psalm 51, David, in response to that incident, that confrontation, prays this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. And I want you to notice how often he says, me or my or I. He's owning his sin. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're approved right when you speak and justified when you judge. David took full responsibility. See, Nathan had held up a mirror to David and said, looking at David, this is you. And David said, you're right. <laughs> and then in verses 16 and 17, later in the prayer, David says, to God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Now catch this. Remember our verse on the front of the bulletin? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
He's acknowledging God does not desire religious rituals from you and me. He desires a sincere brokenness. Where we get to the point we are sickened by that sin we committed the other night with what we said or what we did or what we didn't do. We are sickened by it. A broken and contrite heart. Does that sound like the last part of our passage in Isaiah? I also live with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So here's the key. Write this in on your outline. Seeing and acknowledging our sins specifically. That's the key. Seeing and acknowledging our sins specifically. How do you say that? Specifically. <laughs> Not just, and this is so easy. Oh yeah, we're all sinners. We all blow it, don't we? See, it's looking in the mirror and saying, oh, that's not good in my life right now. And this over here is, is a problem. And this attitude is really bad. And that's why two things are important. You can write these in. That's why the Bible is so important in your life and mine. For reading and for studying because the Bible helps us see the truth about sin and the truth about ourselves. It's our mirror, James 1 says. The mirror we have to look into, and then when we see that sin, we do something about it because we've seen it in the mirror, and we acknowledge it. And I think that's why some people avoid the Bible, because they know it's a mirror, and it shows them themselves. So it's easier to avoid it altogether. But there's something else that becomes so important, too. That's why confession is so important. Admitting our sins to God and to someone else that we can trust. Psalm 32 is, is a psalm that I speculate, I can't prove this, I speculate that David might have been referring to the incident in that nine months between the sin with Bathsheba and Nathan when he confronted him and David repented. In that nine months when he's hiding his sin, <laughs> this is what I think he's referring to in Psalm 32. It says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against uh, them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. And then he confesses this about not confessing earlier. He goes, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. In other words, when he was hiding the sin and would not confess it, it was eating him alive. <laughs> but then he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. He's saying, God, I finally was freed when I confessed it, specifically. Proverbs 28, verse 13 puts it this way. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. One of life's most important questions then becomes, will we conceal or confess? Will we conceal or confess? First John, New Testament, echoes the same idea in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We're liars, in other words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
the mirror. But there's a related step to that. That's our third picture. The third picture is self in the dirt, a picture of repentance. Self in the dirt, a picture of repentance. Now this should be our reaction after we look in the mirror. Now what does this mean, self in the dirt? Does that mean we work hard outside and get dirt all over us like some of you guys did at Decatur yesterday at our service day and with all the mulch and everything and now you're Christian, you were up in that truck unloading that mulch, so does that mean you're more righteous because you uh, were dirty yesterday? <laughs> or is this referring to, you know, self in the dirt? Is this, do, we, do we go into mud wrestling and say, well, I'm repenting, I'm getting dirty? <laughs> or is it the child? This is probably good. This sermon was not, at this point, was not in last Sunday's sermon when, when the, uh, it was Family Sunday and, and some more kids were in here. Uh, it's not the idea of a kid getting filthy and then saying to his mom, Mom, I'm just repenting, you know? The Bible says... Self in the dirt, that's a sign of repentance. You know? So what does this mean, self in the dirt, a picture of repentance? It's referring to a common scene that's in the Bible, and that is sackcloth and ashes. In other words, times of grief and times of repentance in the Bible, it often refers to someone being in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth was literally a coarse fabric made of goat's hair or camel's hair in that time, much like we would... Uh, kind of a burlap type thing, which wouldn't be real pleasant to wear. <laughs> and this comes up over and over in Scripture. Two instances uh, I want to refer to in Esther, uh, when Mordecai, Esther's cousin, heard this bad news about someone trying to wipe out the Jewish nation. It says this in chapter 4, When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. On down it says, And many lay in sackcloth, and ashes. In Nehemiah uh, chapter 9, a very similar uh, type of scene, it says, On the 24th day of the, of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. And this idea comes up over and over in Scripture. Jesus even refers to it in Matthew 11, verse 21. And it carried with it the idea of sorrow or guilt or shame. In other words, the idea when it had to do with repentance was, you know, I have become morally dirty. I have become morally dirty in the eyes of God, and therefore I'm going to get down in the physical dust to illustrate that because I'm morally dirty right now. What did our text say? Last part. Also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Write this in on your paper. A sense of shame can be a healthy, freeing thing. Now I realize, and sometimes uh, today counselors kind of overdo this thing of, you know, getting rid of all your shame. Uh, no, we should not get rid of all of our shame. It can be overdone at times. But folks, shame can awaken us. Shame can motivate us. Shame can serve as a future deterrent to sin in our lives. To be ashamed of something we've done. Jeremiah 6 was a time in Israel's history when um, the people had gotten very evil and they, well, kind of like our culture today, where sin's no longer sin in a lot of people's eyes. God addressed that. He says of the people at that time period, he goes, they dressed the wound of my people as though it were not serious. <laughs> They're not taking their sin seriously. Peace, peace, they say, <laughs> when there is no peace. 
Catch this next phrase. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. Paraphrased, God's saying, shame on you for not taking your sin seriously. Shame on you for not having enough shame in your life. <laughs> and therefore, down a few verses later in that same chapter, it says, Oh, my people put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. <laughs> there was just time to feel some shame and to do something about it. It's a call to repentance. See, the sin we see in our mirror in our own life should anger us and disappoint us and break us. In other words, we become so disgusted by our sin that we never, ever, ever want to do it again. So we get up from the dirt with a new holy resolve. In other words, let's not be like the crazy story I read about the cowgirl. She was visiting Texas from um, Arkansas. And um, she walked into a bar and orders three mugs of beer, okay? She sits back in the back of the room, drinking a sip out of one mug, and then she drank out the next one, and then she drank out the next one. She finished those, she came up and ordered three more. Well, the bartender approaches her and says, uh, you know, that's going to go a little flat. Why don't you just order one at a time? And she goes, well, I've got to explain. She goes, I have two sisters. And she says, One's Australia, one lives in Australia and the other lives in Dublin, Ireland. She goes, when we left our home in Arkansas, we couldn't drink together anymore, so this is the way we do it. You know, I, I go, and they, they, we all three do this, and I get, I get the three mugs, and I drink all three of them like I'm drinking with, with my sisters. She says, well, that's, that's a nice custom, I guess. And, and she becomes a regular at the bar, and everybody notices this pattern. She comes in and orders three mugs every time. One day she comes in and only orders two mugs. And everybody thought, oh, no, I bet one of her sisters has passed away. So uh, they are really quiet and, and kind of tiptoeing around. Finally, the bartender says, you know, I don't want to intrude on your grief, but I just want to offer condolences on your, on your loss. And she kind of looks back like, what are you talking about, my loss? And then she realizes what he's getting at, and she says, oh, no, no, no. And she goes, everybody's fine. It's just that my husband and I became Christians. I quit drinking, but it hasn't affected my sisters, though. She had not really, really changed. See, the evidence of repentance is long-term change. The evidence of repentance is long-term change. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. J.W. McCarvey McGarvey described repentance this way. A changing of the mind or will caused by a sorrow for sin resulting in a transformation of life. <laughs> Starts in our head, moves into our heart, and changes in our lives. Bonnell Thornton described repentance this way. He said, true repentance consists in the heart being broken for sin and broken from sin. And then I, Martin Luther really boiled it down. He said, to do it no more is the truest repentance. <laughs> In other words, I show that I'm sorry for something. I've really repented when I stop doing it, period. 
See, that takes deliberate effort and action on our part. And I saw that principle or read about that principle in a true story from NCAA basketball clear back in the 1988-89 season. University of Michigan was playing Wisconsin early in that season. And Michigan's Ramil Robinson stepped to the foul line for two shots late in the fourth quarter. His team was down by one point, and he could regain the lead for Michigan with those two free throws. He missed the first, he missed the second, and cost them the game, and they were favored. Ramil felt so bad about missing those two key free throws, he decided, I'm going to do something about it. So every single day, from that day on to the rest of the year, through the rest of the season, every single day after practice, he would shoot 100 extra foul shots by himself. And thus, Romeo Robinson was ready when he stepped to the foul line to shoot two shots with three seconds left in overtime in the national championship game. Swish went the first shot. Swish the second shot. And those won Michigan their first national championship in 1989. Because he had decided, I'm not going to mess that up again. And I'm going to take whatever steps I have to take <laughs> to never do that again. That's really what repentance involves. You and me being so sorry <laughs> and so committed to changing that that particular thing is not going to happen again because we're going to take this step, this step, and this step with God's help to not do it again. Spiritual victory requires that same resolve and effort and a whole lot more is at stake than a basketball game. So here's the question. How sorry are we about our sins? And how hard are we willing to work to do better? For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. When we are truly in the dirt Sorry for our sins. God is right there with us, wanting to lift us up. But when we are casual and defiant and arrogant about our sin, we are in no position to be helped or healed or forgiven. But I want you to notice what God did to lift us up out of the dirt. This is picture number four. It's quick, but it's so important. Christ on the cross, a picture of grace. Turn, if you will, to a passage in Titus chapter 2, and we're going to refer to a couple of verses there in just a moment. Jesus died on a cross in our place to take away the filth of our sin. What a magnificent picture of grace. The sinless one taking the punishment for us sinners. The righteous one dying in the place of we who are unrighteous. The holy one sacrificing himself for we who are not holy. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Grace, Christ on the cross for us. But Titus chapter 2 adds the practical dimension that I like. Titus 2.11 says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And if you jump down to verse 14, it describes what Christ did. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Grace, Christ on the cross for us. But you see that grace calls us to deep gratitude. 
and it calls for sincere praise, and it also calls for a better life. Look again at verse 11, and then they read the two verses after it. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace is our motivation. But then we get the motivation. Where do we get the moral power to do better? Because often, as you know, our spirit is willing <laughs> and our flesh is weak. So how do we, in appreciation for Jesus, do better? That's the last picture. Picture number five. Spirit in control, a picture of power. Flip over to Romans 6, and we're going to go there in just a moment. The Holy Spirit in, in control of our life, that's a picture of power. Acts chapter 2, at the end of the message uh, of on the day of Pentecost, reviewing what Jesus had done in his grace, Here's the reaction of the crowd. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, again, first explanation of the gospel and how to respond to it. Peter replied, repent. Just spent a whole bunch of time on that. And be baptized. And it says two things happen. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God says, you respond to me in that way with broken-hearted repentance. You bury that old life in baptism. I'll take away your sins, number one. And number two, I will give you a helper to help you do better in the future. See, the Spirit is to give us moral power. That's His main goal. That's His main purpose. It is to help you and me be more holy. That's why He's called the Holy Spirit. <laughs> because once He comes in us, He can make us holier. <laughs> So Romans 6, verse 6 and 7 says this, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that our, the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So we receive that forgiveness it talks about. But then you go over in chapter 7, here's those verses that will, I know make me feel better, <laughs> because when I see Paul struggling, well, I, I know I struggle, like he does. Paul says this, Romans 7, 19, For what I, I do is not the good I want to do, and no, the, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. So then in verse 21, he says, So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I, I, I delight in God's law. But I see a, a law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then chapter 8 opens up saying, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life has, been, has set me free from the law of sin and death. And then 9 through 11 in Romans, Romans 8 is the, the picture of help that God wants to give us. It says, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of your sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And verse 11 is awesome. It says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. 
Did you catch that? He's saying in verse 11 that the one who was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit, is living in you. He can help you overcome anything in your life. Which brings us back to that question that young man in the urban slum asked at the end of that message. What if you can't? What if you can't? Well, if we can't, God says, my spirit in you can. When we allow God's spirit to have full control in our life, we have the power to overcome. The power to follow Jesus, the power to be more like Jesus, and the power to win over temptation. See, it all depends on if we are in control of our life or if the Spirit is in control of our life. That's the bottom line. So which, which picture are people seeing in you and in your life? Of course, when they look at my life or your life, they see some sin. But I hope they also see a gradual improvement in our life day by day, week by week, month by month, by the power of God's Holy Spirit living in us. So let's acknowledge our sins, let's abandon our excuses, let's turn from our sin, let's seek God's forgiveness, and seek his power to truly change us. And all that begins with faith, trusting in what he did on the cross, trusting that he'll give us his spirit and to empower us. And then confession is a key step, confessing the sins specifically, confessing that he's the Savior. Repentance then moves us further in the right direction. And then baptism is like burning the bridge back to the old life, saying that life, it's gone. This is a new one. And baptism is also a picture of grace <laughs> because it pictures the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. But you see, all that is up to us, how we respond to all that. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us how badly God wants us to repent. Badly enough that he's withheld the, the return of Jesus. <laughs> the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Up to us. Here's our verse one more time, and then we're going to sing our song. For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So, statement at the bottom of your outline. I hope this is your resolve, my resolve today. I repent. <laughs> and desire to live in a higher place by the power of God's Spirit. I, for one, am incredibly grateful, not only that Jesus died for me, but that he also is willing to empower me when I'm not good enough and strong enough myself. And I'm willing to accept his help because I sure need it. And I think you're probably in the same boat I am. This song is about surrender, and that's really what it comes down to, is us trusting him enough uh, to not only save us, but continue to empower us from that day forward through His Spirit living in us. Maybe you need to respond to His grace and goodness for the very first time in, in those steps we just talked about. Or for a lot of us, it's just there's still that nagging area that we keep falling in or we keep failing in. 
that we need to say, God, this, I'm going to confess this, and maybe to someone else too can help me and, and hold me accountable. And from this day on, in the power of the Spirit, it's going to be different. It's going to be different. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's Word and follow His Son, Jesus Christ.